Welcome back to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Today we have a good friend of mine who I worked with for years, and he was actually one of the first people I thought of when developing this podcast, because if there's anybody I know that seeks to integrate theology and mission, it's this guy. His name is Dr. Scott Callahan. He earned his PhD from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is now a lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament at Baptist Theological Seminary in Singapore. He is the author of, well, a lot of you won't read this one because it's pretty technical, but he's the author of Modality and the Biblical Hebrew Infinitive Absolute. There you go. For those of you who had been wanting to know that, wanted to study up on it. But some of you may know his other book. He, he was the lead editor in World Mission, Theology, Strategy, and Current Issues that came out in 2019. He also composes Chinese worship music for congregational singing. So, Scott, dude, you are a man of all trades. <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, man, you break the mold when it comes to what people think of when they think of Old Testament Hebrew scholars. You have published on Hebrew grammar, and you, like I said, we talk about songwriting in Chinese. You've yes. written on the Book of Ruth. <laughs> Actually, it was in, it was integrated, wasn't it? Didn't it have to do with Ruth and and homosexuality, wasn't? Was that right? That's right. That's the Tyndale Bulletin article from several years ago. Yeah, and then you edit and contribute to a book on world missions. So, my goodness, that makes me wonder what you're going to talk about next. You know, <laughs> right, right. Well, so, some people say, you know, so it, what kind of scholar does all this kind of thing? And and <laughs> I would say every everything I've written has arisen from personal, not experience, meaning it's about me, but just as I've lived life, right? Mm -hmm. As I've lived life, I've encountered certain situations that have brought up thinking about certain issues. And the wonderful thing about being a Hebrew and Aramaic scholar is that there is a direct, this isn't a theory thing, a direct connection between the original languages of Scripture, the Word of God, and life, because mm. the Bible is for all peoples in every place, and getting as close as we can to what the Bible says in its original form is helpful in all of life. And so, mm. you know, that's, that's what I've found. It mm. did, certainly didn't, me, didn't need me to ratify that principle, but I've certainly found that in my life. Mm. Well, and you can certainly uh, speak to that because you do not grow up as a young child saying, someday I want to be a Hebrew scholar in Singapore. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you took the circuitous route of uh, U.S. Naval Academy and becoming a Navy chaplain. Uh, how's that for cross-cultural experience? Right, right. Well, being a military chaplain is a very cross-cultural kind of thing because before persons in the military, then you know, they're, they're an outsider, they cross over. And then they enter into that culture and participate in it fully. But at the same time, um, God sends that person as a, a missionary in that new cultural context. And in fact, it's the most open mission field there is as far as, uh, you know, you're wearing the clothes of the people you're with. You're doing the work mm. of the people you're with. And in a way that doesn't detract, but only adds to 
the you know spiritual health, the vitality, everything about the environment, you have the opportunity to be the witness for Jesus Christ. Mm. So, I mean, it was a wonderful thing. It was the absolute right thing for me to do at that time in life. And God really surprised me when he uh, called me and my family to leave that and do what we're doing now. Okay, so you got your PhD, started doing your PhD study when you were transferring from the normal job of, of a Navy sailor to being a chaplain. All right. What you're referring to, yes, is that I was a submarine officer first, okay. and then God God called me to be a Navy chaplain, so I got out of the Navy the first time and went to seminary, and during that time, God ambushed me and surprised me with having <laughs> me do a PhD in Old Testament and really falling in love with the languages of the Old Testament, and uh, I did wonder what that was about because that wouldn't be the the thing that the Navy would be most excited about is I served as a chaplain being a Hebrew grammarian, <laughs> yeah. but finished that up and, and served for many years as a Navy chaplain until I discovered the main application of that learning. Mm. Cause you know, it's, it spills over into everything. You know, yeah. it, it certainly enhances all kinds of ministry to be the Hebrew grammarian that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that I have been, but the main application is that is the present work of being a theological educator, and I do it uh, mostly in a non-English language setting. I teach in Chinese. Mm, my goodness. Well, we're definitely going to get to that in a second. Uh, but most people, if they're going to become chaplains, they maybe uh, study like biblical counseling or you know something mm-hmm. like that. You know, if they get real adventuresome, maybe they do theology or New Testaments. But the Old Testament and Hebrew specifically, why that? Right. Well, it, it was just that's what I was born to do. So, I mean, ultimately that's where we have to, that's where we have to go. Right. But the, uh, a a person who is in that field really doesn't have any problem with seeing where the application is because just in general, and I think we'll find this even more later in our discussion in general, uh, the Christian church does not regard the old Testament as highly as it should as three quarters of the Christian canon. And thus, the Old Testament speaks, ironically, with a very fresh voice. When, when we apply the Old Testament to ministry situations, when we preach from the Old Testament, when we teach from the Old Testament, when we seek God and we find him in the pages of the Old Testament, it's a very fresh experience for most people in the church because it's just seldomly heard in a meaningful sense. I mean, you know, we those who grew up in church will hear certain Old Testament stories mm. and usually certain carefully edited Old Testament stories. Mm. <laughs> you know, take the, take the rough edges off Old Testament yeah. stories. But because of that editing, because of the, how they're sort of couched often as moralistic tales, mm-hmm. they don't really have the impact in the, the worldview shaping, the life shaping force that they're supposed to have as Holy Scripture. Mm. So it's, it's just exciting to sort of be a channel for helping people uh, see the Old Testament come alive in their lives. So, you mean, you entered kind of a whole new world when you moved overseas, and especially the Christian overseas world, doing cross-cultural teaching, cross-cultural ministry in Singapore. Uh, And so you've seen a lot more of books about that sort of work. And what has been, as an Old Testament guy, what has been your takes for looking at 
you know, anthropological, missiological, cross-cultural stuff mm. in the Old Testament. Uh, right. Uh, does it get the Old Testament stamp of approval or no? <laughs> well, I think a basic issue is that, you know, I, I kind of have already mentioned the Christian church not taking the Old Testament as seriously as it should, as a full full member of the Christian canon. Well, that's, that's sort of true, I have seen and others have seen in many areas of Christian endeavor, including cross-cultural work. Mm. Meaning, I, I think that we're a little quick to trust in human wisdom and then cast Scripture aside rather than uh, see how Scripture has pointed us to the right way to interpret what lies before us as human wisdom. You know, it's very valuable to study uh, other cultures, particularly those whose basic worldview assumptions are really not your own, and to understand the most, uh, you know, to try to get to the point of having an effective communication method cross-culturally. I mean, all that's extremely valuable. Um, None of this should overturn the teaching of Scripture because Scripture is for all cultures, all peoples, all times. And so the true anchoring in the entire biblical canon is sort of a flag I wave, And, and that's a theme throughout the book that you mentioned, the World Mission book, because every chapter, its intent at least, is to communicate a back-to-the-Bible emphasis of, you know, whatever area we're considering, such Mm. as studying language to be able to communicate Mm. cross-culturally. This should be a biblically grounded exercise. Mm. You know, I mean, like, that's that's an example. I I wrote the chapter on, on language, in the world mission book, that's an example of an area, a field that it seems to me most literature is very utilitarian, pragmatic, Mm. and really does not reflect much except perhaps in its sort of passing mention of ultimate goals, not very biblical, biblical theological in its approach. What I'm getting at is that language learning for missionaries tends to be treated as language learning for diplomats, language learning for anybody would be. Like, what special contribution does a theological approach to language have? Well, actually, I would say it grounds you in a reason why you're studying the language of the host people that you're going to. It directs the kind of language learning you're going to do. And of course, yes, it gives the whole motivating goal that drives you through the day-to-day hard work of learning another language. And so that theological, the biblical theological approach, the entire worldview built on the Bible contributes to areas like this that I I think that just normally this has not been the the approach to thinking about in several ways of about missions, you know, language learning and and other areas of missions. Uh, You're you're touching on so many good topics because the average person moving overseas, whether a diplomat, a missionary, whoever they are, they get, yeah, we need to understand the local language. Language is important. Mm-hmm. But the biblical languages, learning the biblical languages ranks just, I don't know, about 50 spots lower than the Old Testament, which is already low <laughs> <laughs> on many people's agenda. You know, the New Testament, yes. Theology, yes. Yes. Uh, those sorts of things. And, you know, one of the first things they're going to ask is, I've heard people ask, 
listen, do Gentiles today really need to know the Old Testament and all about Israel and all that stuff? I mean, really? I mean, is that really relevant for them? What say you? Well, <laughs> it's our story. <laughs> you know? So is it really relevant, three quarters of our story of faith? Well, I, I, I would say so. And one, one way to talk about the significance of the Old Testament getting close to its message is to basically use the New Testament to ratify it, mm. saying we can't understand the New Testament fully. And this is totally true. Mm. We can't understand New Testament revelation fully unless we understand the entire worldview package Mm. that comes from the Old Testament, that undergirds everything that is the background music mm -hmm. to what seems new, mm -hmm. that informs everything. Well, yes, totally true, and that's a good argument, actually. <laughs> How, well, <laughs> however, there, th there's this little thing left unsaid. The thing left unsaid is there was a time before there was a New Testament. And it was not, I'm not actually referring to the pre-Christian era. There was a time that the early church had one Bible, mm. the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew and Aramaic Bible, the Old Testament. And they felt that was sufficient to preach the gospel from. Now, yeah. it's not sufficient for us today because we have the New Testament, the precious New Testament revelation. But the Old Testament is sufficient for preaching the gospel, says the church. Oh man, those, those are fighting words for some people. <laughs> you know, I uh, when I was reading, uh, rereading your chapter in the World Mission book, and I just want to say this: read this uh, couple, these couple lines because it's just really potent. It says, uh, "In truth, it is impossible to disentangle the universal from the specific without draining the biblical text of a great deal of its meaning." and eviscerating its spirit. All biblical teachings are steeped in the stubbornly particular lived scenarios of the human condition. You like that, huh? <laughs> oh, oh, goodness gracious. I'm sorry, anytime you can use the word eviscerate in a sentence, it's good. I was just reappreciating your writing style. Uh, whatever they say about Hebrew grammarians, you are not a dull read. <laughs> <laughs> There's the key word eviscerate there. <laughs> yes, well, and, and what you're referring to is so key for Old Testament studies. So, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entire Bible, are not little aphorisms to live by. And neither are the Proverbs that most closely approach that genre, the, the aphorism kind of genre. Everything in the Bible has a context. Mm. And that context is the unfolding story of God's redemption plan for all of humanity that began with God. It did not begin with us. If, if God is who the Bible says he is, he is uh, completely in charge of what is going on in his world, and he knew that we human beings would, in all of our being, want to oppose him and set ourselves up as the arbiter of truth, you know, right and wrong that we would decide that we deserve all the honor and praise, not God, mm. and rebel against him. He knew that was going to happen. Mm. So his, his redemption plan involves real circumstances of real named people. And that trail through history 
leads to the person who has just accepted Christ mm. as Savior and Lord. Now, that person's story is not getting written down in divine revelation, but that person's story, the, the string, the thread of that story goes to all these people, all these names. It goes to Abraham, mm. Isaac, Jacob. I mean, you know, the, the, the way that the, the biblical story then starts rattling off the names, it does it so consistently because this is our story and we're supposed to embrace it. Hey guys, I am the theologian in residence at a fantastic organization called Mission One who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization. Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. People compare, say, doctrine, doctrine, theological points are like the street signs directing Mm. you to places. You know, when you arrive at a street sign, you haven't arrived at the place. You know, just directing you. And that the places are the stories, such as in the Old Testament. Mm. And that's where we get our theology. So why not go to those places? And I found yes. that when I was teaching students in East Asia, they gravitated to the Old Testament stories, uh, from books from, you know, from the Hebrew Bible, way more than your average Westerner, because it mm. seemed to be for them more concrete. It was like, oh, this is how God actually interacts with the world. It, it seemed to be less abstract for them when I, when I spoke from the Old Testament. Well, and you have nothing to fear from the Old Testament because, you know, you mentioned the street signs, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of propositional content of the Bible. Those are dependable street signs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they reliably point to truth, as you have said. And it's not like the truth is elsewhere. They are true. You know, all, all, all the propositional content. So I think what you're, what you're mentioning that, that's really exciting to hear is that those you have taught in the past in the Chinese, the Asian context, really appreciate alongside those concrete pointers to truth, mm. the same time, concrete ways that they're lived out. And mm-hmm. we, we have a lot of that content in the Old Testament. You mentioned that I've, I've written on, I've taught about the book of Ruth many times. An am- just amazing thing, if I can you know, mention Ruth one more time here on the podcast (laughs) is because I I use every opportunity to to bring her up is that it's very clear that the writer of that short part of Holy Scripture really intended for us to see Ruth as sort of a paragon of what a faithful God-worshipping, you know, true God-worshipping woman is like. The, uh, the verbal connections, for instance, to Proverbs 31 are crystal clear. And the way that the narrative unfolds is she is a virtuous woman and she's not Jewish. Mm. Here's the thing. As I say this, this is not any kind of dig against any ethnic group, especially the Jews, right? Mm, All this is saying is the Hebrew Bible has this content. This isn't some sort of ethnic statement about 
well, we need someone from another ethnicity to critique us. No, no, no. This, all this is saying is that ethnicity is not where faithful relationship to God is found. You yeah. know, it's dispelling such an idea. It's beautiful. And that idea is fully embraced in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. All right. So I'll give you your, a chance for you to make your best pitch because, you know, many people think that, you know, study the biblical languages is, is, is not practical, not the same way that like mm. evangelism yes. or preaching or counseling. And so it seems impractical compared to other things. So why should people prioritize uh, yes. Uh, not just go, oh, it'd be nice, but prioritize their study of the biblical languages and particularly cross-cultural workers. You know, yes. what's, what's, what's your pitch? Right. right. Well, so history is filled with disregarded advice about how important the biblical languages are. So Martin Luther quotes about hmm. the importance of the biblical languages. We think of people like William Carey, the cobbler, who could read his Greek New Testament. And normally the context of these exhortations that fall on deaf ears normally about studying the biblical languages are really directed towards the pastor for expository preaching purposes. And all that's good. I'm just saying I, I want to do exactly what you said, which is focus on the cross-cultural worker. So let's do that. In the midst of probably a very stressful time, of preparation to go to the field when the cross-cultural worker is is in a native setting and is, is able to spend some time with equipping, why should such a person prioritize the study of the languages of the Bible is what I want to talk about. So I'm glad you asked exactly that. Okay, why? I mean, I think we all understand to some degree the importance of being able to speak the language of a host culture, host nation, because there's a certain dynamic to native language communication, even when conducted by someone who is not a native in that language. My, my illustration of this that I've just seen in life is I teach actually some English classes too, because why not? You know, I can do that at uh, the Baptist Theological Seminary. My main purpose is to teach in Chinese, but I find teaching the same subject, my teaching in Chinese is much more effective. Huh. And this is because when I teach in English, I'm teaching students whose first language is not English. So there's this barrier in getting uh, to them. Yeah, there's yeah. this barrier of their first language is something else. Mm. So there's meaning lost as I'm speaking here. Mm. I'm speaking my native language, speaking to second language English speakers. There's meaning that's lost. It's less effective. But then go over to the Chinese example. Okay, that's obviously not my native language. But assuming I say it right, and I don't mm. say something embarrassing and wrong or something like that, which mm -hmm. of course happens from time to time, but assuming what I'm saying is what I intended to say, and it's, it's right and everything, 100% of that is received by the native speaker. So you see much more effective communication. Now, that is a very understandable sort of couple scenarios there for the cross-cultural worker. Well, now let's apply this to this other language question scripture. We just mentioned that when I'm speaking my language, there are going to be some barriers that my message hits for people who are not native speakers of that language, who haven't, say, studied English very much. There's a transmission loss due to their competence in that language. There's a transmission loss 
from the original languages of the Bible in translation to our, our modern languages. Mm. What I think is a good analogy to, to try to grasp, well, how serious is this loss? You know, is it impossible to understand the Bible without having studied the original languages of Scripture? Well, it, it's, this is not my analogy. I got this from someone else. But it's sort of like watching a TV show or movie in black and white when you're reading the Bible in, in your native language. It's praiseworthy and it's wonderful that there is a translation. And get this, just like the black and white TV show, it's faithful. Mm-hmm. It is the show. You know, so the message comes across just fine. But it's not the full art. It's not the full message. It's impossible because this TV show, this movie was filmed in color. So there, there's a transmission loss there mm. that every person who reaches across languages understands languages are different and there's going to be some transmission loss there. But I mean, I emphasize it's the black and white version of a message is faithful. Okay. So this is not to try to get people to say, well, I guess I can't understand the Bible because there's transmission loss from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But here's the thing. Is that an acceptable transition, uh, transmission loss? I think the person who is supposed to be the one who's responding to God's call to transmit that message to a new setting, it's never been heard, mm. should want to transmit it as faithfully as possible. Yeah. So you're only doing half the job if you're speaking this other language that you've learned to the host nation folks. Mm. That is fantastic. You're totally supposed to do that. But on what basis are you doing this? Well, you're doing it, if, if you haven't studied the original languages of the Bible, you're doing it on the basis of, of course, you know, your, your Christian upbringing, your Christian life, your meditation upon God's word in English, which is great, which is black and white. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, in this crucial situation, why wouldn't you want to be able to do the best you can to render that message in color? The, you know, this whole contrast between black and white and color, the phrasing I've used in the past when it comes to contextualization is that we all have a relative perspective on absolute truth. Mm. The, the truth of God is, is expansive, infinite, but we have a limited viewpoint and it seems like what you're saying is that if we will learn we could at least limit our limitations <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> i mean whatever that you know how, whatever that means uh broaden you know our limits if we would learn the biblical languages because at least we get more clarity on what the text is saying because our language inherently limits yes. us it's in the little details and sometimes it's in uh truths that you only get partially what the author was trying to say unavoidably that is, is lost in the translation process. So this is not to denigrate any particular Bible translation or anything, but I'm, I'm just trying to bring up the idea that English is nobody's standard. Yeah. So the gospel, when it goes to a place where it hasn't been before, it shouldn't ideally have to be filtered through an alien language it should be as direct as possible to the, the target language there. I've heard people say, why study the biblical languages? I mean, I'm not going to be a translator. Right, right. Yes. So isn't that why you study the biblical language so you can translate? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> so, I mean, of, I mean, of course, of course, a few people are called to the noble task, the time-consuming, often frustrating, incredibly significant task of Bible translation. But the vast majority of people who study the original languages of Scripture are not going to do those ministries. So what's the point? Well, it was never the point to generate translators. The point is to generate interpreters. Mm. People who are going to use, you know, legitimately hard-won study, you know, this kind of thing, use the study of the original languages to interpret Scripture, Mm. to be able to proclaim that word in a way that subtracts the individual doing it as much as possible. I am never the point, at least I shouldn't be, I'm never the point when I'm preaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of, okay, my Greek teacher at Gordon Conwell, Ed Kazarian, got this from Scott Haifman. So there, I've I've cited my sources here. He said, they both said, we teach you Greek, not so that you can translate. We teach you Greek so that you're not a slave to the big books. Yes. And what they mean by the big books are, you know, those scholarly works, the big dictionaries, these kind of things that where you go, you where you look at these commentaries and you go, well, they said it, it must, that must be true. But then you get confused right. because five different commentaries say five different things. Yes. So again, let's think biblically, right? All of the commentary writers are fallible human beings. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in many cases, they, they have more, um, marination time in the details of what they're talking about than the reader or whatever, they can still be wrong. And as you pointed out, they can contradict each other in the stances that they're taking due to denominational commitments or whatever. Okay. So, you know, many, many reasons, but the thing is the reader without understanding the, even what they're talking about, the basis of discussion is left with sort of an intuitional basis of a groping for what the right answer is in any of these controversies. And the problem is our intuition is flawed. We are flawed. So what do we do? Do we throw up our hands and say, we will never understand scripture? No, let's drive towards understanding. Let's do the hard work of submitting ourselves, not depending on intuition. No, Mm. rejecting that as much as possible, but driving towards God, will you please remake my intuitions? based on the the sweet truth of your word. Well, let's take this conversation back just a step or two, because in your chapter, within the book World Mission, you frame this entire discussion about language learning yes, and so forth in, I think, a rather unique way. At least it's not articulated the way you, as clearly as you did. And a lot of times people will say, well, you should have just learned the language. This is a good thing to do. And it's just kind of, but you really give a theological framework for this yes. whole discussion. Could you kind of unpack that for listeners? So, I, th- I think the whole question of missionary language use should be approached from biblical theological direction instead of utilitarian, purely utilitarian direction. Why study the biblical languages? I think one objection might come from the standpoint of, you know, look, 
the people to whom I'm going are not even literate. Okay, so I'm going to have to be really basic with what I say over there. So therefore, my role, as I, as I see myself, is to be the, the storyteller, you know, just laying the groundwork. And, you know, praise God for that person, right? But I, I would suggest that we need to broaden our horizons beyond ourselves and look at the long-term health of the church that's being started there. So, yeah, you know, may, maybe the church is going somewhere it's never gone before. Maybe it's starting from zero, but we don't want it to stay there, right? Mm. Long term. Literacy is not the point. The Word of God is the point. Mm. The Word of God, since it became something that could be transmitted reliably, <laughs> has been written. Mm. And so, you know, what, what, why focus on that? When we have a written Word of God, when we have a stable form, that does not change, it doesn't depend on the messenger anymore. Mm. So this is the idea of subtract myself. I'm not necessary here. Mm. These people have everything they need. You know, th- this kind of idea, they don't need me. They don't mean, need me to rush in and say, no, 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 you're reading this wrong because my English Standard Version Bible says so-and-so. You know, because the English Standard Version Bible is a quality Bible translation but it doesn't have authority over other Bible translations because of its trans, uh, translation philosophy, because of the scholars who were cooperating on it for any reason. It, it's, I mean, you know, why, why that translation and not another? Especially it, in this particular case I'm talking about, it doesn't necessarily have any authority over the way that the original message would be rendered in some other language. Mm. The ESV has no authority there. English has no authority. So again, it gets back to the biblical theological thinking about the message. Okay, so telling that story accurately mm-hmm. in the setting, you know, the preliterate setting or whatever. Well, don't you want the benefit of the watching of the show in, in uh, color instead of black and white? How about this? How about having stereo listening to the music instead of mono? You know, yeah, yeah. How, how about be, putting yourself intentionally in the setting where you have opened up all the avenues that you possibly can to God soaking his message in your heart, mm. transforming you and making you, yes, that faithful storyteller instead of artificially limiting your ability to do your number one job. Mm. You're, and see, here's the bi- biblical theological basis. What's a missionary? Mm. So it doesn't matter if you're missionary number one or missionary thousand, you know, down mm-hmm. the line, 10 years later, 15 years later, what's your job? Mm. It's to obey the Great Commission. Mm. And the Great Commission has content. So this isn't an abstract thing. And this yeah. is another issue the book gets on, you know, baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So there's content there, Yeah, you know? So you want to you want to do that you want to do that rightly. If cross cultural workers and believers for that matter, for that matter are fundamentally communicators, messengers. Yes. What could be more practical than yes. knowing the biblical languages? That's right. It's not my message. Mm. I need to faithfully transmit the message and it could be that my perception of the message is wrong. How would I know? Yeah. I would only know by the standard. You know, the standard's the Word of God. Yeah. So if you don't learn the languages primarily for translation, but for interpretation, could you share 
an example uh, of how your knowledge of the biblical languages has helped you to convey a point that could not have been made only using, say, Chinese or English translations? Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, so anytime I think you study scripture in a language other than your native language, you slow down because, my, say, my Chinese reading ability, I have to concentrate a lot more mm. on every sentence, every word to try to get it and, you know, assemble it logically in my mind. So I was, I was reading in Genesis, the, I was trying to read through Genesis in, in Chinese. And I came upon this little story that, I mean, I think strikes the modern reader as a time-wasting interlude in the story of Jacob. It's he's heard, and I, you know, I write about this in, in the book, so you, you can see more about the details of this. Don't need to go in the details, but so he's heard that Joseph is alive. He's thought he's been dead all this time. You know, years have passed. And this is changing everything in his life. And Joseph wants him to pack up and leave the land that God had promised him. So, I mean, really, you, you can see this, this kind of conflict about, but wait a minute, God promised me this land. Why am I packing up and leaving? And so he has another encounter with God that's similar to previous ones that he's had. This is Jacob we're talking about. And God says to him, look, I'm going to go with you to Egypt and I'm going to bring you back from there. And you're like, great. You know, and then, and then the story moves on. So, you know, I, I didn't quote that from any English translation, but that's just basically what it is. And like I said, if you're making a movie now about the Jacob and Joseph story, that's like, well, okay, that's about five seconds if it's going to show up in the movie at all. That'll be a deleted scene, perhaps, if we need more color in the story. But it's incredibly important. It's the most emphasized sentence or a couple sentences in the story, in Jacob's entire story. How do you know that? These are technical details of Hebrew grammar. Okay. Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> yes. So this is not just like you think that that's important. You're saying that... no. No, there are explicit signals in the Hebrew text, some of which are completely untranslatable mm. into any other language that doesn't have the same kind of structures, you see. Mm. So, it is indeed important what God says, I will go down with you to Egypt. And in fact, some English translations will say, I indeed, you know, oh, okay, that's, that's emphatic. Well, yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly in focus, but it's actually the second half that's more in focus. And I will definitely bring you back from there. And without going into details, okay, Jacob's going to be dead when he comes back from there. But the point is, God is going to keep his promise. Mm. His promise to Jacob and to his descendants to give them that land, God's going to keep it. So it's, it's sort of like addressing what the main question has got to be at this time. I'm abandoning this land. Don't you worry, Jacob. I the one who am going with you now, taking you to this dangerous, faraway place you've never been, I will bring you back from there. And that's the point right there, that that, that uh, segment of this conversation with, with God uh, is trying to make. That is invisible in a modern translation. Yeah, it should be as I'm looking, comforting. Yeah, as I look at the English, it looks like the main point is, hey, I'm going to go with you to Egypt. But yeah. what you're saying is that actually the the author is emphasizing the opposite. 
Well, he's emphasizing both, but he tips the scales of emphasis to the second. Ah. Because of course, it's com- it's comforting that God will go to Egypt with him, of course. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. But it's even more comforting that he's going to mm. come back with him. Because it, oh, it, it, puts, it puts the puzzle pieces of Jacob's life together in this time when the puzzle was exploded by just learning that Joseph was still alive. Oh, this dovetails really well with some of the things that I've said about contextualization, and that is emphasis is inspired too. Not just the words in the Bible, but the emphasis in that message is inspired. That's right. I mean, especially when you can point to grammatical reasons, which is what I do in the book for that. Hey guys, our conversation with Scott went so well, we decided to make it a two-parter. So this includes part one of our interview with Scott Callahan. Let people know about this episode, the podcast. Keep the conversation going.